This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 566 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Neville Johnson. Now, Neville was born and bred in South Africa, but ultimately served with the British Army and now lives in New Zealand. So you can imagine the international perspective that he has. So we discuss a host of topics from his childhood, growing up in apartheid, his journey into the military, transitioning out, discovering writing, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 566 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Neville Johnson. Enjoy. Well, Neville, I want to start by saying thank you so much for getting up really freaking early to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. You're welcome. So tell me where on planet Earth we're finding you right now and what time of the day it is. Oh, currently, um, the time is just 10 past five in the morning um, and it's in New Zealand. And I think it's a, a Wednesday morning. Yeah, Wednesday you, you morning. You think it's, a, <laughs> it's that early? <laughs> I had to check, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I want to get into, you know, where you're from and all that stuff, but just purely, you know, for for educational purposes, I have talked very fondly of New Zealand since I first went there. I love that country. I, I got to visit an around-the-world trip. I did a backpacking trip um, and was, you know, definitely impressed not only by how kind the people were, how... Um, clean the country was. It seemed like there was a, a very kind of environmentally conscious philosophy over there. Seemed like overall the health of the nation was pretty good. And then it seemed like for a long time the the pandemic was was a kind of mild response when it comes to the government. But then recently I see an, a knee jerk. So again, without loading yep. it, you know, what, what have you seen over this last year and a half? The the, the pros and the cons. Oh, there's been a um big change you know when the pandemic hit the first time it was a bit of a shock for everyone but more so the last couple of months where they um where they changed um where they brought in new laws regulations uh for for people um especially those in the education sector and the health sector where they where it's, it's now been mandated for uh, those individuals to be vaccinated and um, yeah, it's it. I think it's changed. They came in rather quickly, and it, it was a yeah, it was a, a bit of a shock for some to to have uh, the changes so happen so quickly over the last couple of months, especially the last couple of say weeks again of of having these these laws and, and these uh, regulations. You know, and, and it's and it felt forced, so at least. 
it seems like it just kind of came out of left field. I mean, it's, it seems like there's been some great leadership up to that point. Um, and I don't, I'd be interested to get your perspective. I felt coming from the UK and certainly from the US that a lot of the people in, in New Zealand, you know, were just, were, were a healthy group of people. And obviously there's obesity there like anywhere else. Um, but just as through my eyes, we seem to be coming out, you know, the, the, the initial wave and then this Delta variant definitely, you know, had peaks where there was a, an impact. But even now with this latest one, I'm hearing, positive things that hopefully it's going to be a milder version um but yeah. so to do these mandates and have these sudden like clampdowns now to me whichever country chooses to do it seems seems weird and from a first responder who is vaccinated i still think it's absolute madness to to mandate full stop especially now when it seems that we're coming out of it yeah yes yeah, true it's 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 difficult because um initially the first time when all this um went down um it, it, it felt like you know it, it would go over some stage, but with the changes that it was brought on so quick, it came to a point where, well, if you don't do this certain thing, you're going to lose your job, and um, and you shouldn't think about yourself. You should more think about others. You know, it's it's a very touchy subject. It's 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 very difficult to um, to be in right now, um, especially so in, in New Zealand, because it feels like there's a massive divide with, with people, with, with the country and with families, which I've seen. And it's it's quite alarming, quite alarming, to say the least. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I, you know, there's no lean to that. I'm just, you know, we, we, we get reports, but when you hear people from, you know, all over the world and what they're seeing and with, you know, their, their lens, their community, it's an important part of the whole tapestry for us to get a, a good global picture of, you know, what's being do, done well and maybe where there's, you know, elements of overreach and, um, you know, th things that don't make a lot of sense. And if there's a lot of things that don't make sense all over the world, then maybe, you know, <laughs> that's a clue that we should question that. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that went done and it just, for me personally, it just doesn't make sense. A lot of it, um, but yeah, it's the the massive divide that I've noticed ever since they they brought in the mandates for for um for the vaccine uh, to have it done. Otherwise, you're going to lose your job. And I've, and they've we've seen it here with a lot of teachers in the education um, sector where they were told you can't even get on the premises if you haven't had your first jab um, on a certain date. So timelines were brought in, and there were yeah a lot of people for that, a lot of people against it. And same with the um, with the health sector, a lot of people were were told if you, if you don't get it done, you're gonna obviously lose your job or you won't be um, allowed on site. And um, it just feels like it's never ending. It just feels like once you give away your freedoms, uh, it's hard to get those back, um, if at all. Now, with you having a history not only as you know, a personal trainer, but then you know obviously a, a warrior, a tactical athlete. Um, what have you seen as far as education in the underlying health and overall fitness and nutrition in New Zealand? In America, there's been basically nothing. It's almost the reverse. It was suppressed. How dare you suggest that, you know, this obese person died of anything other than COVID? And there's no discussion at all of improving overall health. Um, what have you seen in New Zealand? Have they, have they been doing a good job in creating more resilient people through this last couple of years? Well, I would say of um, the evidence and of the things that I've seen that the medical side, uh, they've, they've done a great job with, um, with, with what they have and, and what they could um, with in regards to keeping 
Um, keeping everyone healthy, um, not so much, no. Yeah. No. Yeah, and see, and that's the that's what is sad, and you know, I think you know this whole you're being selfish if you don't get vaccinated. You know, my response is well, I you know, okay, that's that's your your perspective. So show me your before and after pictures. I'd love to see the the weight loss journey you've been on the last two years. Oh, you haven't. Yeah. So then, how can you stand on your podium and and t- call responders, for example, selfish when you've binged on Netflix and done nothing and got fatter and more sick and more of a liability to the country, but you had a shot in your arm, so therefore that makes you, you know, able to stand in an ivory tower. I mean, it's 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 complete hypocrisy. And the ideal thing would be if vaccinations work and it's for the right population, you go with that and you create a healthier population at the same time. So as we come out of this, you've got a healthier country full stop. But, yeah. you know, I'm not seeing that. And it's interesting and it's, and it's sad because I think, you know, New Zealand is more progressive than than several countries when it comes to health. And it sounds like they dropped the ball the same way as a lot of other nations have. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I've, I've seen ads where, where we're talking about um, you can go through to the drive-through of a, say, a fast food outlet and you can get your vaccine as well. You know, they were that. Um, sad. But, yeah, New Zealand is a, is, is a country that's yeah, proud on, of its um athletes and sport you know with the famous all blacks and all that but it, it seems like um it's this wave of um negative um news on the media that's a, that's 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 come across which is um we are alarming yeah well again i appreciate your perspective on that now to me i can hear the you know the non-Kiwi element of your accent. You're probably like me. I've lived all over the world, so I've got this bastardized version. Um, so tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Um, yeah, I was yeah born and raised in, in South Africa. I was born in uh, in Joburg, well, city, and grew up in Rurabur, which is a, a big town on the, on the outskirts of, of Joburg. Um, back in the, um, yeah, I was born in the late seventies, and had a um, a very good upbringing, a very good uh, life back in South Africa. You know, with my mom and my dad, um, and my and my sister, and she arrived later on. Um, there's a, yeah, it's it's it, it was a wonderful life. You know, it was a wonderful life. You grew up in a in a different environment to what it's it's now. Um, yeah, my dad is he's an ex uh, police officer. He served in the South African police force. My mom was a nurse. So yeah, it was predominantly um people in uniform. You know, my one of my uncles, he was uh, a firefighter. Um my my grandfather, um, he was uh, a a pilot during the Second World War. It was a very vibrant, uh, a very good area um that that I grew up in and, and so you know, um yeah, it was it was great. Now, when some people think of South Africa, obviously, you know, as a, as a young British boy growing up, and I was born in the 70s, so, you know, the, the apartheid and a lot of the, the troubles that, you know, were, were publicized were seen to us, you know, the, you know, Nelson Mandela coming in, the liberation, and then I've got a step brother-in-law, um, he and his wife, my, my stepsister, lived in i forget where it was now but they themselves you know were about to have their farm taken you know and and so so there's always different again positives negatives with you neville's perspective you know through the time that you were there 
you know, w- was there any experience of that apartheid element? And then, and then t- if there was, you know, talk to me about again, you know, the, 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 the elements that have been portrayed correctly and maybe some of the myths surrounding that that you experienced yourself. Uh, yeah, growing up in South Africa, yeah, it was a very challenging environment, um, especially as a, as a kid for me back then. Um, yeah, I grew up, it was a, it, it was a good environment for me. Um, but then thinking back to what I've been through as a kid, you're thinking it's normal um, to go through that that experience, and and it's not. You know, having that big divide between skin color, like the the divide we've got nowadays, with you know you're vaccinated, you're unvaccinated, you're black and white. You know, um, you're growing up as a as a kid thinking it's normal, thinking it's okay, um, and then believing and trusting authority, trusting uh, people higher up. And thinking back now, um, it's not it's not normal having to being separated, having that divide with uh, with people. But the ironic thing is when um, when my dad deployed with the police force on the on the um, South African border war, um, the the people that they worked with were predominantly black. You know, the people that went to war with them, they were um, you know their brothers in arms. Um, but then back in South Africa, we were told, especially during the you know late seventies and eighties, you know because of your skin color, you can't sit um, in a certain place, you can't stand at a certain place, you know you can't go to certain places, and, and you can't be on the street after a certain time. You have to carry a, like we do now, a a little um, document, a book, with a photo on your ID, and um, you have to have that on you if you're a certain um, skin color. You can't be on, you know, out on on the streets after a certain time, you know. But the funny thing is, when they went to war um, back, you know, in, in the late sort of seventies, early eighties and nineties, you know, a lot of their their countrymen that fought with them um, were black, you know, people that they trust with, people that they would pr- probably go and fight again. Um, yeah, very very interesting, and it's a very hard thing to talk about, a very hard thing to describe. Sometimes, with um, you know, for people that weren't there, um, yeah. But yeah, having to to grow up in that environment, thinking yeah, it's normal, and then you're trusting the authority, trusting the people is um, they, that this is not right. Yeah. Well, thank you for that perspective. I think it's so important for us to hear. You know, and, and I'll get this later when we talk about the the deployments too. I ask a similar kind of question, but. I can see clearly in my mind images of firefighters during, you know, the civil rights um, demonstrations in America, you know, blasting black people, you know, white firefighters blasting black people in a riot. Then you think about all the members of, you know, the the Germans who maybe didn't buy into the initial Nazi philosophy, but found themselves part of that machine, you know, and it's it is terrifying because we do have a parallel now with these vaccinations and this government overreach where no we're not all the way to concentration camps or you know townships in johannesburg but this is a glaring red flag of a first step again and as you said i think there's a lot of people when something becomes a norm that's an extremely dangerous environment because then you find yourself part of something that when you take a step back you realize maybe isn't ethical after all yeah uh, correct yeah correct especially with, with nowadays where they talk about the new normal and this is normal you think no it's not it's not supposed to be normal Yes, I, I know there's different changes in this things that's taking place. I'm not saying it's it's not happening, but it's it's not supposed to be normal. It's 
it's not. You know, and back then, growing up in that environment, um, I was very privileged and 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 um, and lucky to to have had a, a you know hardworking dad, hardworking mom. But then there's certain aspects of that when you when you grow up thinking, well, hang on, I want to go play with a kid. Why can't I do to do certain things? Why the big divide, you know? And then you get different stories from both sides. Um, that's that's done atrocious things, you know. And you think, well, who should I believe? Yeah, but it's 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 got a South Africa's got a very rich history. Um, some of it good, some of it bad. But yeah, the culture, the people there is just phenomenal. You know, I grew up in an environment where um, it was it, it was a great time to be alive back then for me during that time. And, um, and and my only dream back then was to follow my dad's footsteps, to 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 go and follow him and, and walk with him and be in the place with him and having my mom there. So they are these two big heroes, people that I want to, follow um yeah that was a big sort of big part of my life but yeah that environment of growing up in in uh just on the outskirts of south africa it was a, a very interesting time now with um yeah you obviously as we said we, you got into fitness you got into um yeah the, the the military ultimately those are both two professions that demand you know high level of athleticism what were you playing or how were you training when you were in school age back in south africa oh rugby I mean, it was expected, you know, you're, you're a young boy, you will be playing rugby, you know, in primary school, you know, you, you played rugby bare feet, you're on the field there, and um, yeah, that was expected, you know, you, you, you're you going to play rugby, and yeah, from the time I could sort of throw a ball, kick a ball, I was out there on the field playing, playing for the for, um, for the school, um, playing high school, you know, it was, yeah, expected, you don't play rugby, you play cricket, or both, Um and then, uh, yes, I was yeah kept fit in in the gym training, and then um, after high school, I did try club level, but for some reason the um, the desire fell away. I thought back then, I then thought, well, I've got a choice now. It was it wasn't expected you know, that the pressure wasn't there, and I thought, no, I'm, I'm not going to play you know rugby anymore. I'm going to just focus being in the gym. Um, I had no sort of aspirations, no goals after high school. I just thought, well, I've got a choice now to either not playing rugby, and I thought, I'm not going to play rugby anymore. I'm going to focus my time in the gym, be old gym junkie. Um, but, yeah, it was expected. You either play rugby or play cricket, or you, or you do both, and, and you do well. And, yeah, it was that pressure that um, they expected from you to, to be good at that sport um, back in, in that time. Right now, you said you play barefoot. Would you mean that as as since you were a little boy, or would that actually be barefoot rugby when you were younger? Actually, at school, um, primary school, you know, the the kids, the boys played, you know, barefoot, you know, rugby. Um, you know, you've you've had your shorts on and your, and your rugby top, and you know, the the, the ref there and the, the two teams playing. Yeah, you were you were barefoot. See, I love that. I mean, I I. I'm still looked at as a weirdo in my CrossFit gym because I do most of my workouts barefoot. But when you look at, you know, the evolution of man and or woman, you know, we only had shoes, especially confining shoes very, very mm. recently. But it's like heresy now to talk about barefoot. Oh, what if you stub your toe? What if you do this? So it's awesome to hear that, you know, primary school kids were playing a very, very physical game of rugby with bare feet. Yeah, no, we did. And also when I remember as a young kid, we went to visit other families. 
who would go to their farm or the area and you would go out in, you know, um, in the bush area um, and you were bare feet. You were playing there in the bush. I mean, back then when, you, when we went to, to visit families and um, I think it was the same for most other South African families, um, the kids were always told to be out of sight, you know, out of mind. You go outside, you play, you don't sit there with, with, the, um, with the adults, you're out there and play. And back then, yeah, there were no TVs, no phones, no internet, you know, you, you explored nature. So you're out there playing and yeah, with bare feet, you know, with your shorts, t-shirts and, and that's it. No sunscreen, no bottle of water. You were just out there with, with the other kids uh, playing until you, you were told to, to come in and, and have a feed and disappear again, you know. Well, another thing, I mean, we're hitting on some awesome wellness topics for a moment, sunscreen. One of my things, you know, again, is I personally believe that a lot of these sunscreens probably have chemicals in that actually cause cancer more than anything else. And, you know, one of the arguments is there are people in very, very hot countries that are out in the sun all day that they don't have a you know national skin cancer epidemic. So total tangent, you know, what were you seeing about sun exposure and dangers of through a young South African's eyes? Uh, back then it wasn't talked of, it, it wasn't mentioned. No, yeah, um, you've, yeah I remember my, my mom, um, they said she wouldn't have been out there trying to put the sunscreen on, but, uh, you know, as, as, as a young kid growing up in South Africa and in, that, in some of the hot climates, you know, you went out there, you played, um, I went surfing, uh, bodyboarding, swimming. It, it, it wasn't thought of. It wasn't a, a, a thing. There wasn't that pressure. It wasn't... Um, yeah, expected. Um, I've, I've never, I don't recall seeing big posters on, you know, on on the shop front walls saying that uh, mentioned about skin cancer or any or any big ads on on the TV. I think back then it was a lot. A lot of the ads that, that I do remember is about smoking. Um, that you see, you know, all big companies, um, tobacco companies, they would sponsor certain events, um, or you would have the doctor say, "Yeah, smoke is fine." You know, it's it's odd and it's weird having to look back some of the ads that they had would would be um, frowned upon now, you know, which is bizarre. Um, yeah, which is a perfect illustration of what we're going through now because in, you know, when we were kids, it was fully acknowledged that smoking caused cancer and, you know, all kinds of other diseases by that point. So, you know, I've, I've said this a lot, this last year and a half, we were asked to trust the two groups outside of a lot of lawyers, you know, that, that are the least trustworthy, which is, um, you know, drug companies and politicians. And, you know, these drug companies and you know, tobacco companies, I mean, they swore up and down, oh, that stuff's so safe. And then fast forward, you realize, no, it's caused, you know, millions of deaths. And, you know, they'll take a couple of lawsuit hits and they'll just keep making the same stuff. So, yeah, yeah it's tragic. Um, but even with the, with the sun exposure, you know, I'm from the UK, you know, we're not known for our deep, you know, mocha tans. <laughs> and <I'm, laughs> I started, you know, lifeguarding in, in America and it was New York. So it wasn't like Florida, but, my skin would tell me when I'd had too much. And I'd put, you know, put lotion on the areas that would get a lot of exposure. But, um, you know, that's the thing. The body tells you when you got too much and you go in the shade then and you build up a, a tolerance to it. And I found that, you know, especially after a, the second or third summer, that I could be out pretty much all day and be fine. So the arrogance that we need to lean into the pharmaceutical company because our body doesn't know what it's doing is again, you know, I think another horrible message. Oh, totally, man, totally. Yeah, it is. Yeah, back then you're thinking that. Yeah, I trust them. It's, it's the government sector. You know, they put out they they um, they hear about our health and our bodies, and you no, know, that that just that wasn't um, true at all. You know, uh, 
just about making money. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, even I'm, I'm sure if you reverse engineer apartheid, I mean, I've talked about this with slavery, whether it was the British buying the slaves, whether it was the America trading the slaves, the whole country wasn't benefiting. I'm sure there weren't white South Africans just, you know, counting all the, all the, 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 you know, the currency, um, and, and, you know, just, living this high life because of what happened there's probably a few people that benefited from the initial um you know, implications or initial uh impact of of apartheid and then the whole country had to live with it from then onwards so you know i mean it's, it's, there's a very few people that benefit on the misery of many many people yeah especially if you look at um what the country's going through now the fact that you've got a very corrupt government in place you've got the um people that voted um, the existing government and, and, and they suffering, you know, um, all the, you know, politicians lining their own pockets, they are fine. You know, they are driving more than the Spain's they're living in these big mansions, but, um, the people of, of the country, you know, they, they suffering. Um, you've got these, um, load shooting where they, when they cut off power for X amount of time. Um, and, and my mom and dad would, would text me saying, oh, um, they can't talk now because they wouldn't, they're not going to have any power. So they're going to load shit where they cut power to certain areas country. You know, there's this timetable of the sick no power for, four, I don't know, four, five, six hours in the next area where no power. Um, but then you've got all the politicians they find because they've got power, they've got um, enough food. But then the other people, the remainder people in the, in the country, you know, if you look at the, the government sectors, the health uh, sector, teacher sector, um, that enforces, it is not what it can be. Yeah. Well, I think that's what you're seeing here in so many places. You know, if you divide people and label each other the enemy, it distracts from that very element that while, you know, while we've got you fighting, no one's noticing what we're doing. But if you actually band together and unify and realize that you all want the same thing, you're going to suddenly realize it's the, it's the puppeteer that's, you know, pulling all these strings. And right now, yes, we do have a health epidemic, but it involves obesity and mental health and addiction and all these other elements. And we're losing millions and millions of people. But what we're seeing is this kind of, you know, the cup game, the smoke and mirrors of, you know, vaccines. Are you pro-vax, you're anti-vax, you pro-police, you're anti-police. And it doesn't change the label, dry erase marker, the label. They are dividing you to distract from the fact that there are a few people making billions of dollars off the ill health of Americans, South Africans, British, you know, whoever. And that's what we need to do is actually demand a, a system in all our countries where we get true leaders who care about the people in that country, their education, their health, their safety, rather than what we're seeing now, which, you know, there's, there's no difference, I don't think, in corruption in South Africa as there is in the U.S. No, totally. Yeah, totally. You know, it's, yeah, it's about helping the people and, and be there for them and you know, the health. Um, and, and tell them, okay, you follow this program, follow this eating regime, and, and just focus on that and, and put the money there um, to focus on on that, which is, yeah, especially in mental health as well, which is a big sort of issue in New Zealand, uh, a big, big issue amongst men, um, funny enough, when, when it comes to mental health, you know, to put the money there and, and help them along the way and help, you know, and start with, with the schools as well, you know, young and help them because you've got a lot of the um, love areas where, it's it's well off areas in other areas where it's um, it's not in, and the kids they're the ones that's that's suffering they're the ones that they're growing up this in this environment 
where um, they're not eating healthy, um, not training. Um, mental health is, is, is way off. You know, they grew up in this environment where they're exposed to drugs, to violence, and then they think, yeah, well, that's normal. That's okay. Cause my dad, my sister, or my whoever's doing it, you know, but you know, it's not, you know, yeah, and then you grow up, and then you got to just tell them, listen, you do have a choice, you know, to either you go down that path, or pick the other path. Yeah. Which is uh, yeah. which is crucial for them, but then they 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 don't, and they end up making the wrong decisions and the wrong choices, which is um, going to affect them later on in their life. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate your perspective on all those things. I want to get back onto your chronological journey then. So you had all these responders and members of military in your family. You know, you were inspired to be in uniform yourself one day. Walk me through, you know, the, the kind of career ladder that you took until it took you out of the country. Um, when I grew up, my only passion, my only dream was to be a police officer, follow my dad's footsteps, being in the, in the police force. And um, um, as you've mentioned, and my mom was, uh, she was a nurse, she was in uniform, my uncle was a firefighter. Um, yeah, everyone in the in the family, you know, and served in in a uniform. And I had no plan B or plan C. That was it. I wanted to be in the police force. And then come the day where I think I was um, in my second or third year in our school, and re- received the papers back then that yep, you were going to army. You know, you can't you can go in, um, but back then you could pick other army or police. And um, I picked police. And then the following year, or later on, um, I did try, um, and it didn't work out the way I thought it would. Um, and I got, I was stuck. I thought, well, what now? Um, and um, I had a good friend that said, um, come and train with me in the gym. Um, we became best friends. He was the, the, the owner of the gym, and it was his wife that said, why don't you go and become a qualified personal trainer? Um, and you can work it, you can train clients. And I had a big, you know, that there was another big passion to be in the gym, to train. And I thought that is a good idea. I got qualified on the work there. And then, um, I thought, why not go to America, you know, become famous, become a famous bodybuilder like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, go to Gold's gym, go to Venice Beach. I thought that's the dream. The next one, I want to go and be famous. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to go there. And it, it came to a stage where I actually, back then, um, I phoned up Gold's Gym. It was back in 94, 95. I phoned Gold's Gym with the help of my, my close friend, um, see if I can, you know, get a job there. And they said, yeah, come over. We can help you. No worries. You just got to sort out your own immigration issues. I thought, ah, oh, okay, well, that's going to be a problem. You know? And then um, someone mentioned, um, go over to the U.K., Get a plane ticket, go over to the UK, work there, save money from there. You can go into America, you know. And I thought, fantastic, I'll be doing that, you know. And um, yeah, and, and, and I got a line ticket, got a job organised in, in the UK, and um, worked there for a for a bit, and um, end up in was it. Um, Somewhere up north, I worked in a, in a food factory, and, and I thought, well, I worked there for, for a couple of months. I thought, this is not for me. Um, I need to get back to working in the gym. I went to Oxford, worked as a, um, as a barman in a, in, a, in a pub, and then I uh, left that and went back to London um, and worked there as a personal trainer in a, in a hotel. That is 
big five-star um, club there and work there. And I thought, well, I, I, um, I need to stay on. And uh, I applied for a, was it a, a student visa? And um, the student visa was only for a year long. And uh, um, I thought, well, I, I need to stay on. And, um, and I would left to go to, excuse me. Anyway, so, so the, student, the student visa was, was running out and then a friend said, why don't you go in and uh, join the armed forces, the, um, the, uh, the army? Yeah, um, you knew of a few people that, that joined the army, a few South Africans as well. And I thought, that's a, that's a good idea. If I can't join the police force and I can't get into America, um, I'm going to join the army. Um, and I walked into the recruiting office in, in London and um, yeah, I've, I've passed all the sort of local tests and all that, and I got offered a, a contract, and I signed up four years um, in the British Army. Now, coming from the bodybuilding space before, because this is something that, you know, I, again, I'm the same age as you pretty much. That's how training was back then. Then you get into the tactical athlete space and you start realizing that a lot of the stuff that we were taught, whether it's nutrition or even, you know, specifically the bodybuilding movements didn't always carry over well to being, you know, the, the, the functional fitness element, the tactical element. Um, what was that transition like? How did your fitness from the, the gym training element, um, carry over to the boot camp element of the British Army? It helped during this, uh, the stage where we had to carry heavy packs, heavy loads, but it was more so to do with cardio, more so with running or walking long distance with heavy weight. So that was the crucial bit. So yeah, I lost a lot of weight, but I was the fittest ever at that stage in my, in my army career and during uh, basic training. Um, because it's all great looking, all big and buff, big, strong muscles, but it's it's more so the mental aspect and the, and the, um, the capability of walking a long distance um, with a lot of weight because then I joined the British Army and it was um, in, a, in the infantry units. So it's your, your front line, your foot soldiers. So you had to be fit in, in the sense of anything that you require or to sustain yourself in the field, you had to carry on your back. And, and, and that changed a lot. And I had to focus more on that than being in the gym and you know, doing a bench press or focusing on the look. It was more so function more than anything else. And uh, it was the progressive training, the progressive overload of when you started to run um, with trainers and shorts and T-shirt. Then you started uh, running with um, combat um, trousers, boots. And they came to a point where you were fully, fully loaded with uh, your, uh, your rifle, your pack, uh, which was heavy. And then you would went on a, in a forced march. And during that stage, yeah, you would do a couple hours of that and then, then run in between and, and work on that aspect to get fit. Uh, which was yeah, a steep learning curve for me because I was used to being in the gym, doing things at my pace, and um, more so the look than actual function. Yeah, no, it's interesting, especially that carrying the load. Even recently, I, I did a, a Go Ruck event over here with um, uh, Jason McCarthy and his his team, um, and. I've always done very well when it comes to you know, Spartan and that kind of thing. Using the CrossFit, the training that I've done has, has applied well. But simply having a pack on my back, a weighted pack, 
was a huge, you know, weak link in my chain. This is very recently. And it, you know, it sucked. And everyone else was like chit chatting and skipping down the road. And I'm like, why the fuck am I so tired when, you know, <laughs> but these guys are trained. They, they spent time with load on their back. And even though I'm sure their strength training and other conditioning was probably similar to mine, that one element of simply rucking, you know, and that's what I hear from the top trainers in the tactical space. Like the only way you can get better at rucking is to ruck. Yeah, yeah, try to. Yeah, yeah, the same with bench press. The only way to get strong in the bench press is by doing the bench press, you know, because um, it's a big compound movement. It, you know, it incorporates, uh, yeah, the pectoral, the, the delts, the triceps, you know, overall upper body strength. But yeah, in, in, in order to get fit, yeah, they started with obviously light packs, start with your rifle first, and they started to, to you know, um, go into forced. They say forced, it's, 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 they call it TAB. Well, in the infantry, it was called TAB, Tactical Advanced Battle where you in a formation, in step, and at a certain speed. And then they start adding more weight to the point where the last bit is where you with a heavy you know, loaded pack and, and a rifle, and you're at speed. You know, like I said, that was my fittest that, I, that I've been um, in, my, in my life, you know, being able to, to run or walk that far, you know, at that pace and, you know, at that distance. Uh, but, yeah, it was done progressively. But it wasn't up until I actually deployed to operational theaters where it really sunk in how mentally fit you have to be, you know, because it's always the mind that, that gives in first, you know, um, especially with, with weight training. You see the weight and there's there's a mental block. You think, oh, no, I can't push that. It, but it's the mind that sends a signal to the muscle to contract and release, you know. Um, and I've trained myself over the years to, before I do a set, psych myself up, be in that zone. And it's same with, um, being in the infantry, being in the army, where you have to be, um, you have to cut yourself off of what's going on back home, of what's going down. You can't think about your loved ones. You have to be on task and you have to be mentally fit, um, which is, um, yeah, crucial. Yeah, I think that's something I've, I've struggled with um, since I transitioned out of the fire service because before it was like my next call, I could be on a rig, we could get this scenario but now that isn't a reality anymore. So that kind of mental thing doesn't drive me. So now I have to find more, almost like a, a community sheepdog element. Okay, well, what if I was in the street and someone attacked my you know, son or a stranger or whatever? Would I have the strength, you know? But yeah, and digging, digging down, I think when we're in uniform, it's very easy, I think, to find that, that why, to keep going. Whether it's fear of losing your job, fear of losing respect from your team, fear of failing on the battleground or the fireground. But then you transition into the civilian space again and you're like, damn, I've got to like really <laughs> dig deep now to find that same burning desire that I had when truly lives were at stake if I failed. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah, um, back then it was, it was easy. Well, it felt easy at the time to get in the zone because you don't want to let your, your mates down. You know, there, there's a sense of pride. And yeah, there's been quite a few times where you really push through the pain, push through all those barriers, because you don't want to be a be the person that they can stop pointing fingers at or make fun of that he couldn't finish the, the exercise, he couldn't finish the area, or he's made this mistake, or he's done that. You know, it's that sense of pride, self pride. Um, and you don't want to let them down. Um, but then yeah, when when I left the army, it was basically yeah, thank you for your service, thank you for what you've done, and that was it. There were uh, no preparation, no 
okay, this is what you could expect. And but no, it's, it's still down to me to make sure I need to keep on top of my mental health. Um, it's just my responsibility. Um, and I need to keep on top of my my physical health. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's very easy to slip into a comfort zone, so to speak, and and not take care of those things. And those are the crucial things because I've got a family to uh, to look after. You know, I've got um, my teammate, my wife. You know, we've got to stick together. We've got to work together on this, and you've got to be on, on top of it. You know, um, but yeah, but back in the army days, it was it felt different because you've got a sense of pride. You don't want to let them down. You, you don't want to be um, the person that they're going to make fun of and say, well, it's because of you that we have to go and run again. You know, you lazy ass. It's because of you that you have to do extra guard duties, you know? Um, yeah, but it's at this stage in there. It's, it's my responsibility. to have to keep on the um, on top of these things, but they don't train um, or train you. They don't prep you or back then say, okay, when you leave, this is what you might go through. This is how you might feel or get you mentally ready. You know, it just wasn't a thing. It was just like, okay, now you're in the army and now you're not, you know, good luck. Yeah, well, I want to get to transition out because I, mean, I think that's a very important point. Before we get to your first deployment, which was Northern Ireland, is that correct? Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, I just want to make sure, you know, I don't miss this opportunity. Up to this point, had you found yourself you know, immersed in, in writing, in poetry, in, in reading? Was there any element of that prior to your service? Yeah, uh, there was reading. I, know, I believe the connection, it was always there. But um, I never had that self-confidence. And it's a thing I've always struggled throughout my whole life. I've had that self-confidence to go and do something. Um, I always had the other people believe in me. Um, close friends, family would say, never, you can do it. You know, they, they would have to believe in me. And then my response would be, how do you see that? I don't see it in me, but yeah, it was it was the the self confidence, and, and the the reading. It's always been there um, in South Africa um, when I joined the army, when I deployed away. Always had these books because when you go on deployment, um, you've got a lot of time on your hands. If you're not on operation on patrols, um, if you're not in the gym, if there is a gym, you read. And yeah, and, and I've read a lot of other books written by other. Uh, veterans um, on the topic. It's funny because you go to war and then you read a book about war. You know, you you uh, just came back from a foot patrol and then you read a book about special forces that's just been to an area that, you, that you've just been. Um, but it wasn't until I deployed to Afghan in 2007 that uh, I started to actually put thoughts and feelings um, to paper. But I believe the connection's always been there um, when it comes to writing. Beautiful. Well, we'll obviously get get to that as we uh, get to that point. Um, prior to that, though, you were in Northern Ireland. So, talk to yep. me about you know when that was, and then what was what was the environment for a young South African British soldier in those times? Um, I finished my basic training was in two thousand and uh, beginning of two thousand and four, and I went straight over to Northern Ireland. Um, prior to that, I had no idea what to expect. I had no prior knowledge, and I should have done, I think. I looked into um, why the Brits went there. Um, but, yeah, it was a, I was this little fish in this massive big pond, and I had no clue um, what to expect. Um, it was confusing at the time because we deployed to an area. It was still classed as an operational tour in Northern Ireland, in Belfast. 
And I think we were one of the last units to to have done foot and vehicle patrols, you know, through the um, through Belfast, which was uh, for me, you know, as a young South African, um, a bit weird the fact that you're there in in this area, fully loaded with kits uh, in uniform, with a rifle that's loaded, and you've got young school kids uh, in the suburban area um, close by. Yeah, I had no clue. I had no clue what to expect. I had no prior knowledge, as in why, um, why um, they were tasked to to be there in the, in the first place. Yeah, well, again, you talk about you know insanity of division. I mean, when you look at the political element of you know dividing the country, when you look at the religious division of two sects of the same exact damn religion, um, you know, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. And again, I'm sure if you reverse engineer, that comes to the few, you know, seeking power that now has a multi-generational effect on what I consider two little rocks that are all my country. You know, I don't see any difference between England, Scotland, Ireland, or Wales. We're all the same people. So it's, it's heartbreaking to watch. Yeah, it is. And I remember back then, it was it was sad because you would see these these two sides, you know, and they they had areas where there was yeah physical big walls and fences to to protect the other side because when when they've got the marching season every year, the two sides just want to do damage to each other, you know, and they would have these big fences and walls to protect them from incoming missiles in the sense of you know um, bottles, um, rocks and stones type thing, you know, and you see these young kids same. Like me, they grew up in this environment thinking what's going on around them is normal. You know, you, you were told to or they were told to hate the other side, which not thinking back, it's it's not normal. You know, it's, it's wrong. Um, but the kids here, they grew up in that environment thinking it's okay to do what, you know, what they did. And, yeah, it was a, a very interesting um, period um, of, my, of, my, of my career back then. Yeah, I'm sure. So, was was Iraq the next place that you went to? Well, funny enough, yeah, it was in 2005 in um, in Northern Ireland. We were told, yep, they can send a, a unit over. Um, so we went from an operational tour to a non-operational tour. So we flew from from Belfast. Of all the other training that we've done, we flew um, to uh, to Basra, Iraq, and that was in in 2005. So, so what I'd love to ask people, and I think probably this is the right time, because I mean, 05 was a pretty, you know, active time, if I'm not mistaken, in, in that conflict. Um, it's a kind of a two part question. As you've probably seen with all the countries that you've lived in now, certainly here in the US, um, we get a very polarizing view that the civilians do of war, either very pro war, kill them all, let God sort them out, or very anti, they're all baby killers. And yet we have young men and women of all, you know, cultures and, and colors and creeds, boots on the ground, you know, that have a very different experience. So regardless of the politics that put you and your your fellow soldiers side by side, was there a moment, uh, a kind of aha moment where you witnessed, you know, maybe some atrocities against the Iraqi people or, or another event that made you realize that there was a job to be done in that particular country? Um, when we deployed there, initially I, I volunteered and um, I thought, well, yeah, I amped, I want to go. Uh, there's war there. We were all amped. And um, yeah, it was a interesting time because we were all amped to go. We were all roaring. We want to go in, you know, and kill the bloody enemy. 
but when we got there, it was a bit of an anticlimax. It was slightly different. Um, yeah, it, it was during that early time. Yeah, it was an interesting time to be there. But through all the patrols that I've done and things that I've, I've witnessed, I realized, well, hang on. Why are we there? What's what's the purpose, real purpose of, of some of the areas that we've been to? And and then you would see the locals and you would and then you would at the time I thought, you know, um we are doing a good thing. We're helping. You know, what we did there for that short of time, it made a difference. Um that was belief I, I had then that I thought we're actually helping, helping the local um people there, the population. But then yeah, I think now looking back. You do question a lot, you know. Um, I'm a bit older, a bit wiser, and you, and you do think, well, what was the whole reason for us being there? Um, did we really help? Did it make such a big difference? The fact that we've been there, the fact that I went back in 2006, and then you see how they how they live. Um, yeah, I, 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 I do ask myself a lot, you know, was it a, a good um, thing to be there? Did we really help, you know, um, and what we did there? that it really made a difference um, in the people's lives back then. Yeah, and that seems to be a struggle, especially with the you know Afghan withdrawal recently as well. But again, through my naive civilian eyes, what I saw, because when, when 9-11 happened, I was mid-20s, I think. Um, I, I saw, oh, you know, the towers have been hit. We're going into Iraq. And I'm like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, that's like, you know, Canada attacking a country and saying we're going to go invade Mexico. Like they're not the same. You know, they're not the same nations. Yeah. You know, the the terrorists fled to Afghanistan. It's a completely different mm. country. So I can see how there's justification and pride in the time served. And you know, I've heard so many stories where in that moment, you know, men and women have made a difference in that community. Um, but again, yes, when you when you kind of reverse engineer some of the politics that initiated it. You know, there, there's that negative force as well, pulling and, and putting self-doubt into these men and women that come home with physical trauma, mental trauma, or even in a body bag. Yeah, exactly. I mean, back then, we're told we can deploy over because there's weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. You know, we can go over there and find them and have all these special forces, all these teams invade, bang over there and, and, and trying to topple them and find these weapons of mass destruction. And um, there were none. Um it's it's a lot of it was just a bunch of lies, you know. And those politicians that that's, that order us to go across, you know, they they still to this day making you know a lot of profit, a lot of money um, from it's a bunch of lies, you know, um, sending people across. Because um, I remember I volunteered to go over, and when I got there, I thought I'm not going to volunteer again. This is this is crap, you know. It's 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 horrible. But then you, you, you're trained, you know, for that environment. But then thinking back, what was the real reason? You know, um, you know, going and to other place, and um, it was all just a bunch of bloody lies. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been so fortunate to hear so many different perspectives. Members of the military from all you know different nations, Iraqi natives, um, Afghani natives, and uh, you know, you. you you hear, I mean, it's not black and white. There's this middle ground where, you know, some of the things were good, some of the things were bad. But but when you factor in things like the industrial military complex, if I got that word the right way around, you know, that basically, as with pharmaceutical companies, there are people making billions of dollars on war. And yeah. so how how is that healthy? Of course, there's a cost to defending a nation. I totally get that. 
But when there's, when you only profit when you're at war, where's the pull to stop you being at war? And that's what I think, you know, it needs to be pulled out of the shadows is like, how do we find this middle ground where we need to equip our soldiers? But we need to have that checks and balances that we're not constantly sending our young women overseas to risk their lives so ultimately a company can profit. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't for me until much later that I, that I realized, hang on, there's this, it's, it doesn't sound right, this whole thing of where the industrial military complex, I think this way you say it, um, they're making a lot of money. They're profiting. I mean, there, there's companies out there where they profit and they make money from making all the bullets, you know, making all the, all the missiles, you know, and, and they make a lot of money, all these private companies, you know. Um, but back then, as a, as, as a young man going in, um, you, you believe what you're doing is right. You, you follow the orders because you've got that trust in them. And then later on in your life, you, um, I've realized, well, hang on, you know, it's, it's not the way it should be. You know, it's, it's not the way I thought it's, um, it's going to be. Yeah, and I've said this before. I mean, I th- you know, there's there is an element, you know, that there's an area that we absolutely need military, you know, and we need to protect our nation. And sometimes we even need to go in to another country to stop an atrocity. And I think World War Two is a perfect example of that. I mean, that was absolutely horrific. And there's other horrors going on constantly around the world. But you know, you, we have to have leadership that understands that we only send our young men and women to potentially die for this country only when it's absolutely necessary. And I feel like that has been blurred. And it's very easy for someone sitting in a governmental building wearing a suit to say, yeah, send them, when there's no physical or personal repercussions whatsoever. Their kids aren't going out there, you know? So it's easy to send a bunch of, you know, people in uniform to go fight a fight a war, excuse me, when you're completely detached from it. So, you know, I think that's, that's just an area that I feel is, is being abused by many countries around the world at the moment. Yeah, I, I think if they really want to sort of start you know, sending people in, they should go in themselves. They should be, I mean, if, if they're telling us to go to sort of things, they should be there themselves. They should be leading from the front. You know, I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to, to be in a leading role, I've, I've had people that led me into battle, and I'll follow them again and, and again. And and those are the true leaders, you know. Um, they would leave from the front, but yeah, sitting in a big office, uh, wearing a suit, telling people to, to go to a certain area, and you're not there yourself. And then when you come back, then which I think the your Britain had um, or the UK had a um, cases where soldiers got brought or taken to court of things that they've done back in the 70s in Northern Ireland, you know, and they got prosecuted for for that, you know. Um, um, and I think that's just wrong. You know, if if you're going to send someone in as, as a politician, go with them, go to the area. Don't don't sort of, you know, lie to them saying there is weapons of mass destruction and um, and there's none, you know. If, if you're going to go and start giving orders, you go with them, you know, be a, a proper leader and leave from the front. Yeah, 100%. So you were in Iraq. So what was different about Afghanistan when you got there? Afghanistan, it was a whole different war game. It was full on war fighting. In Iraq, we had, um, it was more of a peacekeeping role. Yeah, um, you know, certain teams came into contact with, um, with some of the militia there. But it was predominantly a peacekeeping role, helping the local 
um, population and the government and doing um, various patrols with other units. But with Afghan, it was it was full on war fighting. You know, they, you, if you see something move, you open fire. Because um, we all knew that the Taliban were actively out there trying to kill us, trying to, again, um, overrun certain um, PB's uh, troll bases. Um, with Iraq, it was, it was different, you know, um, total different, two different areas. You knew that, that whole sense of, the whole feeling of, um, it was different in, in the sense of you knew it was war. Now, with the, the question that I asked with, with Iraq, were there any moments out there where you saw, you know, atrocities, whatever it was, towards the Afghan people now or and or, you know, fellow soldiers that again took away the political element and put in the, you know, survival slash purpose element for you individually as a soldier? Um, in, in Afghan or Iraq? Uh, if Afghanistan now. Yeah, Afghanistan. Um, when we got there, a lot of the areas, um, a lot of the population, um, a lot of the people, then and um, they've left at that stage. That stage with the Taliban in in Sangatan. Um So we didn't come across that that many um, locals. Right now, I had um, Ben um, on the the show as well. He was a fellow. Uh, he was a Royal Marine, um, and he was talking about the same things. So it's probably that you guys were out there about the same time. In Iraq and or Afghanistan, to, to flip that question on its head, were there any moments of kindness and compassion that you remember amidst the battlefield that you were on? Um, there were, I think, from, from both sides, especially in Iraq. You know, we'll get out there on many patrols. We think you've aborted the kids. Um, the, the majority of the people there were in the night. Um, they, they knew that... We were there to help and, and assist. We were you know, given orders to be there and um, and follow those orders. And yeah, they were kind to us. And again, we were kind to them. Um, with with Afghan, uh, the people there, they yeah, they they've lived through um, different wars, and um, yeah, so it was more so in Iraq where we came across a lot of locals, and yeah, they were um, yeah, kind to us. Beautiful. So, I mean, you've been through Northern Ireland, Iraq, Afghanistan, so a pretty active you know, military career up to that point. Talk to me about the transition out. What was it that made you decide that that, you know, was enough as far as the military service? And a lot of people then struggle with the transition, as you mentioned before, you know, that didn't seem like you had the tools to just, you know, move from one to the other. You've been asked to kill now, you know, now you're probably in a YMCA or something. Um, <laughs> but you lose... A lot of us in the military and first responder profession, we identify as that soldier. You've lost your purpose. You've lost your tribe. Um, and so if there isn't something to fill that with, as some people do have and transition flawlessly, a lot of people, it's a very jarring experience transitioning out. So what made you kind of decide that was enough? And then what was that transition out like for you? I would say I think I've seen the signs when we went back to, to Cyprus, we're based in Cyprus at the time, back from Afghanistan. It was, it was sometime after that that there were certain signs there that I felt like um, I just need to, to move on. I, I need to, to get up because um, something wasn't quite right. That some, Something changed me and I couldn't see the signs. And um, I, I decided to, to sign off. And within the British Army, when you sign off, you got to do like 12 months notice. And I decided it was it was time to move on because um, the battalion were they, we're going through too many changes, and I thought, no, it's it's time to move on. You know, um, I wasn't happy. Um, 
and I thought, no, it's 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 time to to leave the army. But ironic thing is, when I left the army, um, I went into private security, and uh, and and that is basically like being in the army. And um, it was different in a sense of yeah, I had my my tribe back, I had that sense of purpose back, and um, all the little bullshit stuff that it occurred in the army, you know, that was taken care of. It weren't there. Yes, in the army, yeah, there's plenty of bullshits, you know, things, you know, that, that we were told to go and do. Um, and I just felt like, no, it's time to move on. So I left the army and um, I went into um, uh, private security and I went back to Iraq, of all places. Now, one thing I've heard kind of more recently when it comes to contractors is that they're the, the military, the organized national military has all these, you know, regulations around it. But again, I, I might be just, you know, completely wrong in this information, but I've read articles where the contractors are not under these same regulations and therefore that causes issues in some of these countries. Was that anything that you experienced or saw personally? Um, it depends on the contract and, and, and um, how things changed over the years with Iraq, you know, um, when I love the contractors, um, yeah, they would get into contact with, um, with the militias and, and they never fell under the uh, Iraqi, um, law, but things changed again off my private security contract where a lot of the contracts were told if anything goes down, you would then fall under Iraqi law. And regulations. So if you get into contact and if you do something stupid, um, the the security firm won't be able to do much because they would then fall under the Iraqi um, law. Right. So you are in the contracting role now. You serve a few more years, um, you know, under that banner. So talk to me again. What made you finally move away from from the Middle East? And you know, what was the transition then out of the contracting role? Was 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 that still you know, seamless because I mean you basically went from one role to another just in a different uniform. Was it more jarring when you came out of that? It was. Uh, well, the reason for that was just purely family. Um, at that time, um, you know, I was um, engaged and we had a little one on the way, and um, my wife said to me, um, "It's time, time for you to come out, time for you to leave that. You've got a family now. Let's focus on that." And I thought, yeah, because with contract work, you you're away and you missed so much, you know. Uh, I was lucky enough to be there uh, for the birth of my first child. But with contract work, yeah, I, I loved it. I, I loved it. And, you know, I would go back in a heartbeat. Um, my wife would probably kill me. Um, but, yeah, it was at that stage where I thought, yeah, I need to settle down because you missed too much. You know, I've, I've got friends that's still out there, still doing the same thing um, 10, 15 years ago um, when we all started together. On the, on the contract scene. But yeah, it was my wife that said it was time. It's time to come home, you know. Um, and I thought, yeah, I, I gotta, you know, I gotta move on. I gotta settle down and be home with uh, with my wife and, and, and the kids. So that was the main, uh, the main reason, well, the only reason why. Now you had purpose, obviously, because you became a new parent, you know, father, which in itself is an, an amazing mission. Did you struggle at all? Did you find yourself, you know, easily transitioning into a different role you know what was that role um it, it was difficult at first because you know I, I've, I've had that sense of purpose you know it was there with the army was there with the um, private security and when i left then i went to a country which was a bit new and foreign to me and um yeah i struggled to 
to get a work, um, and I struggled with with change. But it wasn't until quite a few years later than the mental aspect kicked in, where I, I could feel the uh, my mental health um, going backwards. Um, but yeah, it was it was it, it was it was tough. It was it was hard because um, when I left the army, it was it's purely you know you in uniform the one day and the next day you're not. So there wasn't a a um, much help from from the armed forces in the sense of getting you ready to to get into civilian life. Um, so what was the mental health journey that that you found yourself on? Because I mean, again, we've had people on here that you know anywhere from a low level of kind of anxiety, depression, all the way through to, you know, literally gun in the mouth. So, you know, where did you find yourself at the kind of the, the lowest part of that journey? And the lowest part, I would say it's just keeping myself to myself, drifting off, being all quiet, you know, um, not talking to people, um, being, to, you know, um, going through stages where I, I don't make new friends, um, to the point where I would I would not train I would not put in the effort to to deliver a happy healthy life you know um, to the point where I could see the um, I could see it in my in my kids I could see the effect that it had on them and I, um, that was the the reason I thought well hang on I, I need to get back on track you know I could see I, I could see it in their eyes, you know, thinking, yeah, shit, it's, it's having this massive negative effect on them, um, on my wife. And I thought, that's not fair on them. It's, it's just not fair. And that was the turning point. That was the, the massive turning point. Now, which tools did you find your, that, that worked in, in pulling yourself from that point? Writing. Definitely the writing. It, I think it came at, at, at the right time uh, for me, you know, to just bring down thoughts and feelings. Because when I left Afghan, um, I literally the photos I had, it was in a shoebox. It was it was you know when I, I was talking about you're putting feelings you know in my mind went in in a bloody shoebox. It was stuck away, and I had a journal which I kept in Afghan. Um, that was filled up, and that was stored away. And it wasn't until Dead Reckoning Collective had a um, had a post up where you could submit um, poetry for a um a book that they were about to print that was in 2019 and um something clicked but something clicked ages ago there was that connection off yeah I that. that's not confident. and um yeah i've written uh, three bits of, of poetry and then only a year later i got the email saying two um they've accepted two but it was it was the writing the help but, but since that first initial submission um there was a a massive um, connection where I thought, no, I'm, I'm going to write more. I'm going to write m- more things down. And, um, and it's helped um, ever since, and it's still helping. So what's some of the feedback that you've had? Obviously, we had um, the founder of the Dead Reckoning Collective, excuse me, the Dead Reckoning Collective on the show um, and, you know, powerful story in, in his own journey. But with you writing, there's that... Um, you know, healing element of, of being able to put your story in a paper. And I wrote a book myself, um, last year and it was the same thing. It was incredible. And it was actually blog posts. So almost like a journal that I turned into a book. Um, and, uh, you know, I felt that kind of offloading of, of trauma and stress as it were. What's, what's been the response of whether it's veterans or not reading your poetry and, and connecting with it? 
Hmm. I've had um, quite a few people uh, responding, people on social media, saying um, that they felt the same. Um, certain bits and pieces that I've written, um, just saying thank you. And um, yeah, I was astounded. I was, um, but maybe embarrassed the fact that people would read it and feel the same, or they that they've gone through the same, or it's helped in in in, in some way. Um, again, um, for me, it's it's it, it feels. It feels bizarre the fact that you know I put something on paper and people um, from other parts of the world would read it and um, and they would affect and or they would say they've been through the same or they would say they understand it they get it um, which is just phenomenal because a lot of stuff that I write it just how I felt at the time or how I feel and um, things that I've experienced that that I've seen that I put on paper and then they would they would read it and they would say I never um yeah, thank you for opening up uh, for being so honest um and i've been through the same i felt the same i've been there i've i've, I've been in Sangen, you know um a few years before you or after you and and i get what you're saying i get the, the desperation the, the the loneliness the fact that there's uh, you feel lost you know and and that's all just in a few lines of, of stuff that i put on on, on paper and um, which is amazing now with the wrestling collective um you know the the what they're doing to enable the veteran authors to be able to put their stuff out there is incredible and removing a lot of barrier to entries or barriers to entry, excuse me. Um, with you coming from the author side, the poet, you know, talk to me about the experience with them. Like, you know, what, what were they able to do that, for example, a regular publisher would, you know, you would never be able to do with a regular publisher? Um, just give us the opportunity to, to be heard, you know, because with the normal, um, the normal means, uh, it would be very difficult to, to get in. Um, but they would give us a voice. I think what they, they've, they've given me a voice. And the fact that they've um, accepted, you know, um, two of the three poems, it's just phenomenal. The fact that they, they, they're giving us a voice, they're giving us the opportunity to, to write. To, um, and then obviously, if, if you're good enough, then if they accept, accept your manuscript and then they they work with you but the fact that um that they can do that and that and, and then they can help us it's just phenomenal yeah it's giving that voice giving giving us that 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 purpose again you know because same with the army you've had a sense of purpose you've you've had that um that way of life and and i feel like i've regained that that the way i there's a new purpose there's a there's there's new hope Beautiful. For everyone listening, Keith Dow was the member of the collective that I had on the show. Um, so talk to me about the books because I was trying to, you know, get the, the right titles before we started talking and I was tripping over myself. So I'll give you the mic. You know, wh which books have you got poetry in and then where can people find those? Sure. There's, um, the veteran collective, which is a, um, authority of, uh, British writers and, um, there's uh, it's it's a series of books there's three and the third one should be out sometime i think in next year and uh, yeah it's it's a, a british author he's approached me it was it was after i initially submitted my my stuff to the dead reckoning collective that again he came across my stuff on social media and um i was just gobsmack thinking well hang on why does he want my stuff in his book you know so he self-published um the, the series of books and he's and he's asked me initially in the first one if i want to submit stuff and back then i think i was the only british uh, veteran that submitted poetry 
or, or poems. And uh, the other people in the, in the first book, they submitted various stories and dits and, 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 and jokes and stuff. And then he approached me again for, for the second and um, in the third, and that's in the veteran collective. Um, so I've been there. And then um, for the Dead Reckoning Collective, there's the anthology of uh, Poet Warriors. I've got two of my poems in there, um, alongside various other um, American veterans and uh, a few British veterans as well. Well, I want to ask you about books that you recommend in a second, but before I do, just to make sure we kind of put a, a bow on the, the timeline, you you were in the British Army, then you became a contractor. At what point did you decide to move to New Zealand? Um, yeah, I would say it was closer to the time I was I, I was about to leave the contract world. You know, um, I, I, deep down, I knew it was going to be in New Zealand. It was also between either stay in the UK, because that's where I met my wife, uh, go back to South Africa or New Zealand, and and we both decided that New Zealand would be a perfect fit uh, to to raise a family and to eventually settle down. Well, with a, a, an international perspective from so many different countries you've lived in, one thing that I talk about on here a lot is that there are incredible initiatives in every country. For example, the UK, I think the NHS is an incredible system when fully funded and staffed. Um, you know, to take care of the health of everyone, you don't get some horrific disease or get hit by a car and the first thing you're asked for is your social security number <laughs> like you're here in the US. Um, you know, you have uh, Finland's education system, Norway's uh, prison system. So what is it that you love? What are, what are some of the great initiatives that you see in New Zealand that maybe you didn't see in other countries you lived in? I would say medical. At this stage, you know, if anything goes down, if anything's wrong, you know, it's, it's, it's a um, great educational system. Um, and just the way of life is, is, it is very fitting for, for a young family, I would say. Uh, but definitely uh, the, the health system is, is top notch. Uh, yeah, and, and the education system um, that I've been part of um, over the last, say, seven years, it is phenomenal. Um, yeah. And what is the role that you hold now? Um, I'm currently in, in between roles. Um, so I've worked for a, a, a company where um, I was actually teaching in, in a school running a services academy program, um, which is, you could say, like a pathway into the armed forces, uh, working with at-risk youth and, and also a, a senior class, which is um, a business management class, which is um, production team leadership. So getting them ready for, um, for the big world out there, you know, uh, for jobs, how to... For example, how to listen to instructions in the workplace, how to give instructions, um, how to submit a CV, how to write a CV. It's just how to conduct yourself in the workplace, which I was never taught. You know, I learned the hard way how to how to listen, um, how to conduct yourself, how to write a CV. I had to go in and ask people and Google that. But with this program that I, I ran for the last, say, three years, it was just helping the, the senior uh, class or the senior students in the school just to be ready for for um for um, when they leave school and the other junior programs it was basically uh predominantly at risk youth um it, yeah, it was a services um school service academy program which basically a military design program um military um pt and military studies um and then again yeah a lot of those kids um like i mentioned before exposed to um the negative side of of life you know um at that young age exposed to to gangs drugs and violence 
um, you get you're growing up in that environment thinking it's um, it's normal or, or it's okay um, at such a young age. So what have you seen as far as the power of mentorship? Because I've this is another reoccurring theme as many in, in this this show. Uh, you kind of see them emerge after 550 episodes. Um, <laughs> but if, for example, there's that kind of mentality of, oh, kids today, you know, rolling your eyebrows and millennials this and snowflake that. Um, and yet that doesn't do anything to solve the problem. And then take diversity, especially in the fire service, which is the world that I inhabited, you know, the, the, oh, we need to have more X, Y, and Z. Over and over and over again, where I see people doing great things and really making a difference is mentorship, taking a yeah. skill set, going into an underserved community and raising men and women up, some which might be the right fit for that profession, some which might not, but maybe they learn, okay, I'm going to scratch it off my list. But either way, being these positive role models and these mentors for, you know, whether it's a kid in an affluent area or a kid in, you know, a very underserved community, like you mentioned. So what have you seen and what are some of the success stories that you witness with that? Um, just the kids opening up, you know, it's all down to, for me personally, it was a, it was a journey for me and it was a journey for a kid, but it's just getting to know them. You know, for me, it wasn't just a kid in the class. It had a name, you know, and I wanted to get to know that person. And it's being there for them and to just build up that mutual respect and just to show that kid, I'm, I'm here to help you. You know, I am, you do have a choice. You you can go down the horrible path which you're currently on or you can go down the better path, you know, which is um, better for, for your future. But just to get to know them, you know, because they, they, they go through the school career or through school where they don't have the connection with the with the teachers, and I've seen it firsthand, and it's it's not there. And they pull up this fake wall where they they don't want to expose their um the real them, and uh, so they have this fake persona of yeah I'm this tough kid, but deep down they they're not deep down they they're screaming for help, you know. And uh, for me, just seeing them, then years later when I bump into them, you know they they come over to me and and um. And they've improved. They, um, they, they, they recognize me. They remember me, and, and then they thank me. And I thought, why are you thanking me for? Um, then they thank me for things I've done, and they remember some of the stuff I've shown them. They remember some of the drill movements, or they remember some of the um, uh, some of the the content on, on on the program. You know, and for me, that's very rewarding. But just building that relationship with with the students, getting to know them, and then helping them um, along the way. Um, which was very rewarding. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. My son's actually a member of the, what they call JROTC here in his high school. And it's out of left field. Like he never discussed really any sort of interest in that, but he's thriving in it. I mean, you know, there's days he loves more than others. You know, he'd much prefer to be doing the PT than the, the parade walking. But um, yeah, and so even in a family that's, you know, pretty cohesive and i'd like to think i'm very involved in his upbringing having separate mentors you know other male or female role models that are truly coming from a good place is is so important and i've watched him just get this entire new skill set from being immersed in that program oh yeah totally i i do believe it's it's really really important and giving them that option and that's helping them because that builds up the character their self-confidence you know and and i could see it within me i could see it within them and them having that self confidence is is so crucial um, for their for their mental health uh, for for their future, and um, and I, it's it's 
it's so rewarding to see that they they've chosen the better path. They've 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 made that conscious decision to um, not let that negative way of life affect them. You know, and um, yeah, it's rewarding and it it makes me really really happy. Absolutely. Well. I- We've been all over the place and it's been an amazing conversation. I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you get on with your still early morning. <laughs> um, the first one, we've, we've discussed the books that your poetry's in. Are there any books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion or completely unrelated. Few, yeah. Yes, I do. Um, I might grab a few from my bookshelf and then I'll show them to you. Um, I've got one here. It's called uh, War and Pieces. It's by Leo Jenkins. Uh, the book is, yeah, it's published by Dead Reckon Collective. Um, yeah, the author itself, it's a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal um, writer. Um, the other one is called uh, My Friend the Mercenary by James Robison. Um, another phenomenal book uh, uh, as well, uh, which I would definitely recommend. Brilliant. That was My Friend the... My Friend the Mercenary. The Mercenary. Okay, thank you. Brilliant. Yep. Beautiful. All right. Well, then, same kind of question. Is there a movie or are there movies and or documentaries that you love? There is a documentary. Um, I think Sebastian Junger, he uh, made one a number of years ago um, about the Korangal Valley. That's another documentary that, that I've seen uh, recently that, uh, yeah, this really affected me in a, in a, in a, in a positive way, um, which I thought is, yeah, it's it's it's. It was a phenomenal um, piece of work. Yeah, that was the one called Corongol, is that right? Uh, or was it Restrepo? Yep, that one. Yeah, Restrepo. One. Yeah, because I think he did a second yeah. one called Corongol, which was incredible as well. It kind of followed some of the Restrepo, you know, soldiers after they transitioned out. But yeah, and then I'm sure you've read Tribe, but his uh, he's been on here about yep. two or three times now. I think amazing man. Yeah, I've listened to one. Yeah, I've listened to one. Yeah, it's a phenomenal person. Yeah, phenomenal um, human being. Absolutely. Absolutely. And his, you know, perspective is so unique being a journalist that was embedded. So, and losing a friend in, in combat. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, then next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I would say Leo Jenkins. I think I agree. His, his name's come up a few times now. So I think he sounds like an amazing man. Um, what I've what I've seen and, and read, yeah, a, a phenomenal writer, um, um, great inspiration for me, I would say, and yeah, I, I think that uh, the community will be able to take a lot away from um, from what he's got to offer, especially his writing. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that suggestion. All right. Well, then the the next question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress these days? Decompress. Um, I go to the gym or I go for long walks. For me, that's that's my space, my time away to be in the gym, to be um, to be away and, and work on my mental health, which which is crucial. So, so those are other places where I can work and, and I can improve. And also the other thing is, is just spend time with my kids because they grow up so fast. And the last thing I want to do is not spend time with them and miss that opportunity. So I would say those those three things, which is crucial for me just to you know, get in the gym, train, um, and spend time with the kids. Beautiful. It's, it's amazing with, with all the, the common denominators that come out of this question. It's nature, it's family, it's you know exercise, um, you know, sunlight. So 
Yeah, all the things you didn't hear about the last two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, then I'm sure people are fascinated. I'm sure they'd love to, you know, find the books. Maybe find you on social media. Where are the best places online to do that? Uh, I would say social media, um, probably the the best place uh, to find me, uh, and also some of my work. Brilliant. And where, which handles and which uh, out, uh, platforms are you on? Platforms definitely are Instagram and and Facebook. I'm 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 on there, um, and I can send you the links for uh, for the um, for the names and and the sites as well. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I'll put that on the on the the web page for this episode for everyone. But I think it's I think it's at Neville Johnson. I think or at Neville Johnson one um, on Instagram. At Neville Johnson one, I think is yeah. Yeah, brilliant, perfect. Well, Neville, I just want to say thank you. I mean, I I sit down with my little piece of paper with you know bullet points on and. You know, I've, I'm always so excited because we never know where the conversation's gone. And once again, we've gone everywhere from apartheid in South Africa through to, you know, parenting and everything in between. So I just want to thank you so much for, you know, firstly, getting up so early and secondly, being so generous with your time today. No, my pleasure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to be on your on your channel, on your podcast.